Hi, I'm Laura Schultz. Welcome to the second season of Starting to Feel Better, a podcast about mental health journeys, trauma, and creativity. I'm so excited for this season to have conversations with writers and musicians and painters and therapists, with folks who use creativity in the work that they do. I'm really excited to share my conversations with them, with you. Welcome to season two of Starting to Feel Better. My name is Kirsten Cron Mills, and I was born Kirsten Cron because um, since I have a hyphenated last name, people want to know which part was my original part. Uh, But I was born Kirsten Cron, and I grew up in Nebraska. Um, So I did not grow up here. The joke is, not the joke, but the general geographical um, knowledge is that the American West begins at the 100th longitudinal meridian. And the 100th longitudinal meridian is just a tiny bit west of my hometown. That's why the guy who founded my hometown got off the train, because he saw the 100th meridian sign. Um, And people used to think it was the main street of my hometown. So uh, my joke is I grew up six blocks east of the American West. Um, uh, That makes me a little bit different here in Minnesota, uh, just because it's different there. Uh, It's bigger there. It's... um, quieter there. There's a lot fewer people. Um, yeah. So place is important to me. That's one thing I will say. I am, um, a mom. I am a writer. I am a teacher. I am a spouse. Um, you know, that stuff is pretty normal or, uh, common maybe is the right word. Not normal. Um, I've been an educator for 28 years. I've been a writer since I was a kid but I've only been a novelist since, well, I guess 17 years. So, um, yeah. What else? I am neurodiverse, which is part of what we're going to talk about today. Um, That's not my whole identity, but there is a lot of me that is shaped by the way that my brain works. And that's just a reality. Um, And, um, yeah, I'm an interfaith minister too. I don't talk about that very much, but that's very important to me. And yeah, I'm just a white-haired lady that lives in Lower North Cato. <laughs> I have a really um, rich life and um, do a lot of things. I have a lot of things that are important to me. Part of the reason that I ask that question in that way is because labels so often get put on us that we don't have any control over. Mm -hmm. And the way that people interpret those labels, we don't also have any control over. That's right. And that's why I don't, I say that I'm neurodiverse because there's a lot of range in that. I don't have to say what my neurodiversity is because if I did, people would automatically start to judge me. And I'm not interested in being judged. I'm interested in being part of that community because that community is very precious to me and very special to me. Mm-hmm. But I am not interested in having your perceptions of my label given to me without you even knowing me. So, yeah, yeah that is a bit of a big deal. Um, you know, people can judge me on the whole 
mom and teacher thing, that's fine. But the other one, I'm not so interested in. Letting ourselves keep the things that are precious to us, precious to us in the ways that feel right. Right. Yeah. So kind of building off of that, this next question is another very open and broad question that I allow you to answer in whatever way feels right for you, which is, can you speak a little bit about how you got to where you are today, whether that's through education or creativity, or as you spoke to connection with communities, however you interpret that question and whichever parts of your identity you want to focus on? I got to this particular place Um, in a way that a lot of people get to places. Um, I was in college and I fell in love and I ended up where, you know, my beloved got a job. Um, That's just sort of how it goes. Um, It happens that my spouse is from this area. He's from Lake Crystal. And so it was really nice to move here and be part of a community that he was already part of. So that's nice. Um, I got to this educational place um, I went to the University of Nebraska and became an English major because I like to read, which is a really dumb reason to pick a major. Um, and I come from a family of teachers, so I just was like, okay, I'll be a teacher. And um, I was intending to be a high school language art teacher and then a uh, spouse. And in order to go with him where he was going, I needed to change my major. And so I did and ended up um, not doing necessarily what I wanted to do. When I met him, I was intending to be in student life. I was intending to go into res life and student activities and that kind of stuff. Um, that didn't work out. I ended up teaching, uh, at the college level, which has been fine and fun and, um, really a great experience, a great career to have. Um, but it wasn't necessarily my choice. Um, it was a good choice. It was not, uh, It was not a planned choice. How about that? Let's just say that. Um, Creatively, I ended up in this space. um, My real goal I was intending when I went into, when I was planning to go into student life, I was also intending to do an MFA. That's not a particularly practical degree. So um, my husband tends to be a pretty practical dude. So we went with something that's a little more, a little more viable. Um, And then after I finished my PhD, um, I was pregnant when I walked across the graduation stage. So I went straight from graduation to baby. And that was fine, but creative writing kind of got pushed away as it would, you know, when you're taking care of a baby and trying to develop um, your career. Um, But then when, I don't know, my son was in preschool at some point, I got a phone call from a high school classmate that I hadn't talked to for, I don't know, 15 years, 12 years since graduation. And we were talking and she said, do you know why I was so mean to you in high school? And I said, no. (laughs) And she said, because I had a crush on you. And I said, oh, and so I had two things that went through my mind. And the first one was, well, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, way back in the eighties, people certainly did not talk about those things. Um, and the second thing that went through my head was, gee, that would make an interesting book. And so I wrote a young adult novel about that situation. And, um, I just finished my sixth young adult novel. I have published four. Um, and I'm hoping that this one will get out there too. So we'll see where I am is, um, 
not expected, but it's absolutely not bad. I'm really grateful to be here. Um, I should throw my justice work in there too. Um, that all got kicked off when I was working in the residence halls as an undergrad. I was um, at that point at the University of Nebraska. They called them essays, student assistants, and now they're mostly called RAs. Um, but we went to see the film Do the Right Thing, which is, you know, Spike Lee's, not his magnum opus, but it's a pretty big deal mm-hmm. in the Spike Lee film world. Um, and I was just dumbfounded. I was dumbfounded that people could do what they did in that film, dumbfounded, and went, there has to be something that I can do about this. There has to be something that I can do. So um, that always got sort of wrapped into my um, teaching world. And I also had an incidence of violence in the very first class that I taught. I had Mm. somebody attack um, somebody that you know, Jessica Flatikwal, mm. um, attack, not physically, but verbally and almost physically attack her um, for being an out lesbian because yes. it was 1993 or 1992, excuse me. And people thought they could do that. Um, so that attack of violence also changed my perspective. And this I just was in a sure class you were teaching? This was in a class. It's the very first class I taught. Oh my gosh. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, it was life altering. So I instantly became a, um, what's the word? I instantly became someone in solidarity with the LBGTQIA plus community. Mm -hmm. Um, and did that work sort of in class and on the side and whatever. Um, in the last four years, I've done a lot more with racial justice. Mm -hmm. Um, but that stuff is all, um, important to me two. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always sort of woven through everything. And the real thing that hooks all of my work together is the sense of outsiders wanting to belong. That is the thread in all of my novels, the thread in justice work. It is my desire to say, why don't we all belong? Mm-hmm. What is it that makes people feel like they need to bully others? Mm-hmm. What is it that makes people feel like there is an other? Mm-hmm. Why do human beings other people? Um, you know, there's lots of different reasons for that. Human beings are categorizing animals and rank choicing animals and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But for me, all the work that I do is related to that sense of community and that sense of belonging mm-hmm. and that sense of saying, hey, I'm here not to judge you. I'm here not to do anything except extend a hand to you. Now, of course, in my time, I have done that better sometimes and worse sometimes. And yeah, all of that stuff is always true. But it really is that sense of outsiders wanting to belong. And when you're neurodiverse, you generally feel like an outsider anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, There's always that feeling of, I don't fit here. I don't belong here. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't get my diagnosis until I was 46. So that's a big deal to go through your life and be misdiagnosed for 23 years and all this kind of crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you figure out when you're 46, it's like, oh, that's what's up here. Right. This is why these things happen. This is why I feel this way. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I actually have a community of people here. Right. 
Um, so finding that out sort of doubled my efforts about how to, how to make that community, make a community uh, even stronger. What else can I do to welcome people? What else can I do to um, stand with people who need someone to stand there, whether it's to stand with them or stand in the way of something that's coming at them? Mm-hmm. However it is that I can do that, you know, mm-hmm. what can I do so that other people don't feel alone? Because I don't want to feel alone and I've felt alone for so long, right? There's got to be ways to relieve that burden for other people. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, that's the underlying thread of all that I do is that mm-hmm. notion of community and that notion of um, you're not alone. Right. And you're not, you're not, um, you're not a misfit, right? Because right. a lot of neurodiverse people tend to feel that way about themselves, at least a lot that I have encountered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just like, you know, making a band of misfits. Yeah, right. right. You know? um, the opening line of my novel that I have just recently finished, it says, we're here, we're weird, you don't need to change us. And there's a star by the word weird, and you scroll down the page a little bit, and it says, this is our word to use. You may not use it against us, though I know you will. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that for me, sort of sums it up. And when I went back, um, I had written a, probably 75 pages of this novel last summer and went back to it this summer. And um, we're here, we're weird. I was like, oh, you wrote that in June when people are saying, we're here, we're queer, didn't you? I was like, yeah, I did. <laughs> that is so anyway. <laughs> um, so it's, that, it's just that notion of being there for people. Yeah. Community, connection. Right. Belonging. Right. Mm-hmm. So you've talked about you have four published novels. Um, I've also been doing a bit of research and you write poetry and shorter works as well as nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically the, the sky always hears me and the Hills don't mind from 2009 was a Minnesota book award finalist. Yep. Beautiful music for ugly children of 2012 was a stonewall book award winner and a Lambda Lit- literary award finalist. One of the things that I wanted to talk about and ask you about is that I found, I guess, especially with music, that some of my proudest achievements are not the same ones that people put in the bio. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I wondered if, and maybe they are for you, maybe these are your proudest professional achievements, which are absolutely very proud achievements. But I wondered if that was the case for you, if um, your proudest achievements as an author uh, are the ones that you carry with you as some of your best memories when you think back on. Proudest achievements for me are when I hear from readers. Um, So I will give you three examples from, well, I'll give you four examples, one from each novel. So uh, the person who called me up and you know, told me about this crush. I mean, we all knew she was gay, but we didn't have that language in 1987 to say, oh yeah, she's gay, whatever. Um, but she really likes that book. And so it makes me feel happy that she understands that I wrote that book to say, if you had told me this in high school, we would have been fine, right? We would have been fine. It would have yeah. been okay. So that's probably my proudest achievement for that book. Um, my proudest achievement 
beautiful music, that book gets around. It gets around in wild ways. One of the things that happened with that book was um, at the University of Toronto, um, a group gave that book to eighth graders, a bunch of teacher candidates gave that book to eighth graders, and then they made a film about the eighth graders' reactions to the book. And I had no idea this was going on. And then I had an idea, and then I got to go to Toronto and see this film, and oh my goodness, that was amazing. The other thing that was amazing with that book, you know, people would write me and say things, and I know that that book has been good um, for some trans folks as they're just getting ready to transition. They Mm -hmm. find some comfort in that. Um, I know it's been a comfort to children of friends of mine, and that makes me feel good. But I also had a long correspondence with a person in Ohio in 2017, and that person just wrote me this summer to say, I'm here, I'm okay. It makes me laugh when I go look at this previous correspondence. I just wanted you to know I'm okay. Yeah. That's awesome, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's why people make art, is for that person out there yeah. who feels less alone mm-hmm. when they encounter your art. Um, Original Fake is my third novel, and I just had somebody forward me an Insta post where a girl said, you know, this book didn't do very well, so it doesn't have a fandom, and I'm just out here waiting for that fandom. (laughs) And I was like, well, honey, you are the fandom. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Oh, and the other funny thing about that book, um, that year, that book, and I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound like a big flex and I don't mean it to, But in 2017, I had two books that were um, finalists for Minnesota Book Awards, okay? It was a nonfiction book about um, LBGTQ athletes and then original fake. So I was half of the category, and I still lost. That was amazing. (laughs) I just really feel like that is like, you got to be some special person to make that happen. Anyway, that makes me laugh every damn time. And then um, my fourth book, Wreck, a woman from Kansas wrote me. That book is tough. That book is set up in Lake Superior, and it's about a girl whose dad dies of ALS, and he mm. decides to commit suicide rather than let the disease progress. Mm-hmm. And she is part of that. Mm-hmm. I had a woman from Kansas write me. She was, I think, a you know, junior, senior in high school. And she said, this book is my story. Mm-hmm. This book is what happened to me when my dad was, you know, dying, this is the feelings. These are the feelings that I had. This is the, this, this is mm. the, that. and I was just, it, I wrote her back and I said, are you real? You, I mean, are you somebody, are you making this up? I can't believe that this is so parallel. Mm-hmm. So it's just, all of those things are just not the stuff that you would put in a bio, but there are all those connection moments that say, Mm-hmm. This piece of art made a difference to somebody. And even if it's one somebody, that's wonderful. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So that's a great question. Oh, thanks. Yeah. To see that mission fulfilled, mm-hmm. to see like this is exactly what I want to see happen. I want connection. I want people to feel seen and to feel not alone. And then to have people explicitly reach out and say those words like, Oh, what a beautiful. It is. 
circle. It is a beautiful circle. It really is a beautiful circle. And, um, you know, you just can't forget the privilege of that, mm. the privilege of having somebody reach out to you, being willing to say that to you is pretty great. How does anti-racism education and online moderating of this um, community, how does that intersect with being an author? Oh, okay. It doesn't intersect with being an author as much as it intersects with being a teacher. Um, I should tell the story of the Solidarity Network so that people are a little more clear. So the Solidarity Network is um, a private group on Facebook. And my husband started it the day after uh, Donald Trump was elected. And he left that day for a conference. And so I got this invitation to be, you know, an administrator for this thing. And I was like, what the heck is this thing? And he came home, you know, a few days later and told me what it was. And um, it started out just by being a place where people could say, hey, these people are being harassed or, hey, this action has happened. Can we get people there to support the people who need to be supported? Um, and then it has evolved in the three and a half years, almost four years since that happened. Um, it has evolved into, it has three missions. And one of them is to educate folks about um, ways that we can be intersectional in our lives and ways that we can understand the oppression that happens in America, especially the white supremacy. Um, you know, when you're fish, you don't notice the water that you're swimming in. Um, and so it's, a, the education is a way to sort of, um, point out the water. There is still the element of, you know, when people are need that support, we can call and say, you know, Hey, this is going to happen. You know, we put different marches, the women's March on Saturday, all that kind of stuff that's happening. Um, you know, put those out there for people to be able to show up to support and be in solidarity with communities that need that solidarity. Um, what's the third mission? Oh, the third mission is to, um, show good examples of solidarity, um, and people who are doing, who are doing that intersectional work and who are doing that, uh, work of bringing up the water that we swim in that is so, um, oppressive and discriminatory to so many groups. Um, people who are actively countering that in their business, in their personal lives, you know, however it would be. Um, so those are the three things that we do. And that my, I suppose I should say that my books are kind of an extension of my teaching in the way that I'm not writing about your average kid. Usually I'm writing about um, a teenager who's got some sort of identity that I would teach about in the classroom. And then the Solidarity Network is, um, you know, a direct offshoot of that teaching. Um, becoming a teacher was going to happen one way or the other, even if I went into, you know, student life, residence life, whatever it was I was planning to do, um, because that's all about teaching too, right? I mean, all that programming and stuff like that, that you'd be doing, it's just programming. It's just not doing it in the classroom. It's doing it in a much larger venue. So yeah, so everything is about teaching and everything, all the teaching is about building community, I guess is maybe the way to say it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking about have a big wind up for this, but the, where I land is defensiveness. Like how do we engage with defensiveness? So we've talked a lot about individual trauma as well as resiliency trauma on the podcast. We've talked a lot about um, the way that we define trauma, which is 
One that we like a lot is an event or events that overwhelm one's ability to cope. Mm -hmm. We're also talking right now a whole lot about collective trauma Mm -hmm. and specifically racism as collective trauma. White supremacy is collective trauma. Individuals experience both systemic racism and see their loved ones and community members experience this systemic racism So they themselves experience systemic racism. They see other people experiencing systemic racism as well as individual acts of racism against them and seeing individual acts of racism against friends, family members, loved ones. So Dr. Jeff Brown from MSU spoke on our last season about this as um, kind of how this is almost like a net and all these different pieces Um, This is not, of course, the entirety of the experience of people of color, um, but that certainly white people like me, we don't live with this. We don't experience this. And um, that our privilege, of course, is unearned and invisible to white people, to ourselves. But I wonder about what can often happen when people are first presented with this information, which is that kind of knee-jerk, intense defensiveness. And I wonder about um, kind of how to engage with that as an anti-racist educator. I do love this Ibram X. Kendi, the heartbeat of racism is denial. And that's what we just keep. I really love that too. I'll say two things. The first thing is something that I would say um, something that was taught to me by that beautiful Jessica Flatiqual. Um, she was the first person who introduced me to the idea of the movable middle, right? The 20% that really hates you, the 20% that loves you, and the 60% where you can maybe make a difference. So I think when you encounter that kind of defensiveness, you have to make decisions. Is that person in that 20% who will never see what you're seeing? And then I think it's okay for us to say, okay, I'm done with that. Mm -hmm. I'm done with trying to do that. I don't think there's a shame in that at all. Um, The second thing that I would say is the concept of both and has been very useful as I've been teaching about anti-racism work and white supremacy um, recently. And I'm right now working on a, um, working on a training just about white supremacy. Um, And so we'll see where that goes. But I think that, one of the things we do in America, just because we live in a binary world and Mm -hmm. just because we are Americans who live in a binary world, we like to think that things are either or. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're either a racist or you're an anti-racist, but white people especially are both and because Mm -hmm. you and I may be anti-racist in what Mm -hmm. we do. Mm -hmm. Um, We work actively to disrupt those systems, Mm -hmm. but we still benefit Mm -hmm. from the systemic racism that's around us every day, the white supremacy that's around us every day that allows us to be considered better or -hmm. allows us to be considered first or allows us whatever it allows us. So we are still racist in Mm -hmm. that world. And I think when we can get away from, when we can get away from the duality, when we can go into the gray, when we can go into the idea that it's not, it's not so easy. It's complex. If we can Mm -hmm. hold those complexities, then I think we can walk away from that defensiveness. Now, 
How do we get others to walk away from that defensiveness? That I think is introducing them to the idea um, and saying, you know, we know that you're not a racist person, right? You're not walking around saying the N word. You're not actively, um, you know, doing whatever you're doing to insult people um, of different skin colors. But we are still, as white people, benefiting from these systems that have been set up to keep us on the top. And we can't get away from that. So I would say those are the, those are two things that you can do. The third thing that you can do that occurs to me as I'm thinking here is the concept of tailoring the message. And I have to do this very carefully because I can't, I can't teach about racism and alienate people while I'm mm. doing it, right? I have to make sure that the message fits. And it's that both and again. It's giving mm-hmm. people the benefit of the doubt and mm-hmm. letting them have that personal out so that they know that I'm not insulting them as a human being. Right. Right? And you have to, you have to not assume malice. I think right. that's really the key. Um, because if you assume malice, then that's a different mindset. Um, there are people in our government who are purposely malicious and right. vicious right. and actively out to hurt black, brown, indigenous, and Asian people. There just are. But some people are just clueless. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to make that discernment. You know, is somebody um, racist because they just haven't thought of something else? Is mm-hmm. it our job just to say to them, hey, have you considered, mm-hmm. you know, this, this, and this? Like we have a family member who's very much a Trump supporter. But that person is a Trump supporter because of one issue, and that yeah. issue is abortion. Mm-hmm. I don't think that person intends to be purposely um, racist towards anybody else, but they are just because of that association, right? So then it's a question of how do you, again, how do you decide? Are those people in the movable middle? Are they in that 20%? Um, yeah, so, so tailoring the message is, again, very important. You know, how do you get people to come to a training about white supremacy right. when people can't deal with the words white supremacy? What do you call it then? Right. Right? Um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, right. No, absolutely. Kind of getting people in the room or the Zoom room, as it were, is... Right kind of one of the first steps. And then exactly like you're saying, I remember this is very much something that Jessica spent a lot of time talking about in all of her safe zone trainings, which was assuming best intentions, even when it's very difficult to do so. It's very (laughs) difficult, right? And it's very difficult these days. Um, Mm -hmm. We have somebody who lives down the street from us who has a Trump 2020 flag, make liberals cry again flag. And it's like, you know, and my yard is full of every single campaign sign you can imagine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it is in my heart to want to bake that person some cookies. There's a family that lives there. Bake that person some cookies and say, why is it that you want to make me cry? Yeah. But I also don't want to get shot at. Mm-hmm. And I have a feeling that that is potential. 
that is potentially something that could happen with somebody mm-hmm. with a flag like that. Right, right. So you right. really have to weigh that out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to take my campaign signs down, but I'm also not going to bake cookies. Right, right. So right. you just kind of have to figure out the the happy medium for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we also live in the same neighborhood with somebody um, who has run for local office and has been very notably conservative and particularly xenophobic. And that person, I see that person probably once a day mm-hmm. and I'm absolutely nice to them because I want to be nice to them because they're my neighbor. Right right, right. right. And I can't very well walk up to them and say, Hey, I know you have some xenophobic views, but what I can do is I can put my campaign signs out and still be nice to him, mm-hmm. even though, right. um, he has these xenophobic views. Now, I also would like to say I can do that because I'm white. Mm-hmm. If I was black, brown, indigenous, or Asian, mm-hmm. that's not a luxury that I have to give that man. Not right. in any way, shape, or form. Right. But as a white person, I can, because I haven't lived that experience, I have the ability to deal with his nonsense in mm-hmm. a different way. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. You know, I would never say that any person of color ever has to give racist people any time of the day. No, not at all. But I'm happy to get in there and wait Mm -hmm. in to see what happens and see what I can do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know the answer about defensiveness except to live in a non-defensive way in the best way that you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You can't do this work if you have a fragile ego. Yeah. I guess is maybe the way to say that too. Mm -hmm. You have to be really strong in who you are and really strong in your convictions. And you have to realize that if people are going to either get in your face or be Mm -hmm. keyboard warrior at you or Mm -hmm. whatever it is, you just have to go. You have to understand that people's reactions are about them. Totally. It's not about you. But when you do this work, whatever work it is, whether you're creating community or belonging, or whatever it is, if you're doing justice work of any kind, you have to know that people's yeah. other people's reactions are about them. Right. It's not about you. It's about yeah. whatever insecurity you've awakened in them. Right. Whatever defensive feeling of fragility or mm-hmm. insecurity or whatever it is. So you just have to keep that in mind. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Yeah. But you still have to keep that in mind thinking about creativity, thinking about all of the different projects that you are engaged with, that are ongoing, and thinking about prioritizing. Like, how do you decide what to work on and when to work on it and how long to work on it and then when to move on to the next thing? I think that's a great question. Um, My neurodiversity requires me to be creative, I guess. Um, My brain has to have something to do, for lack of a better way to say it. Um, And I always have to give the most of my time to the work that I am paid to do. So I have to put my creativity into teaching in the best way that I can. Um, I don't get to write very much during the school years. I get to write in the summers, usually. Um, I do write poetry. I write a poem every month. I'm part of a group where we do a poetry newsletter every month. Um, and so you submit a poem every month and then somebody is the editor and they gather them all together and then they ship them off to everybody. 
um, that's really fun. And it keeps my, it keeps that part of the writing muscle relatively sharp. Um, but these people are all just, they are all just so far above me. It is amazing. I think I just am not worthy, but whatever. It's a lot of fun. No, it's true. It is true. One of them was the poet laureate of Montana. So no, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, they are much better than me, but it's a lot of fun. And, um, so I have to, I have to fulfill my obligations and responsibilities. I have to do that. Um, but the goal is to be creative in everything that you do. Yeah. Um, how long do I work on a book? That depends. And that time has shortened a great deal. Mm -hmm. Um, back when my son was young, he, there was a lot of stuff going on. And so I didn't get to write very much. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, now I can write a book and sell it and get it out. There's a two year, basically a two year window between when you sell a book and when it comes out. So I can make the creative process much faster now. Um, now that I have my diagnosis and I have the right medication, I can do that better too. Mm -hmm. Um, than I did when I was, you know, first starting out, but you just do it when you can. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, I end up missing my characters end up missing, um, listening to them and seeing what they're doing. Um, and in the book that I have just finished my draft of those characters are really special to me because this is a book about, this is a book about neurodiverse kids mm. and it's about the power struggle between neurodiverse kids and neurotypical adults mm. and how those two factions don't go well together. Generally. Sure. So they're very special to me. Um, and I kind of want to hang out with them, but I think their book is done at the same mm. time. We'll see. We'll see what my agent has to say about that. But, um, yeah, I don't know how you do it except to do it all the time. Yeah. You just have to do it in various venues. You have to do it in all your venues. Mm -hmm. It can be really helpful to have kind of built-in timelines for that creative work, whether it's I have to get this draft to my agent by this time, and then I know it takes two years, or I have a poem due every 15th of the month so that they can get it edited and put it in the newsletter that gets sent out. Would you say that that is true or that helps you kind of define priority? That's very true for me, especially. Yes, I'm, I do much better if I have an end point or mm -hmm. I will create an end point for myself mm -hmm. if I need one. Yeah. Structure is, structure is good for me. A combination of external structure and, um, internal time to play. Got it. Does cool. that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I love so that. We can, so we can have that. some moments for creativity to bubble up, but I need to have a point to deliver it. Mm -hmm. The last couple of questions are, the first is talking about how we as individuals are remaining feeling connected and balanced. So wondering about how that looks for you. For me, the best things that I have for balance um, my dog is walking around on my bed right now. And um, she's one way that I definitely balance myself. Um, we make sure that we get exercise every morning. Um, I work hard at, um, yeah. I mean, I do all the traditional things like eat right and get sleep and exercise and all that. Um, for me, music is always very, very important, um, which is why I have a book called Beautiful Music for Ugly Children. Um, I have to have some of that every day. I have to 
have some creative um, something, whether it's music or reading or watching good TV or whatever it is. Um, and then connection with people, right? Um, most often the people in my family, one of the ways that I balance myself is to, as best as I can, prevent other people from feeling the sadness that I have felt. That's one of the things that heals me. It's the Dalai Lama, um, you know, if you want peace, bring peace to another, that kind of thing. That for me is really, really um, significant. I also have a pretty big faith. And so I spend time thinking about that. And um, I don't meditate very well, but I do contemplate. Let's just say that. Awesome. So this is kind of building off of that last question and is really written for listeners, um, which is what is one thing someone could do right now to begin to feel more grounded or centered or to help them through an intense, maybe unpleasant emotion? I think the most important thing is to breathe. I think that if we can ground ourselves with our breath, we can weather that emotion. We can remember that emotions are very short and that we can get through them to get to whatever comes on the other side, whether it's healing or finding a way to comfort ourselves um, from the trauma that we have experienced, whether we are re-experiencing it or whether, um, you know, we're trying to heal from it, whatever it is. But I think breathing is the most important thing. And then for me, it's also... I said early on that it's really important. Place is really important for me. So um, get to a place where you feel comfortable. Um, one of the things that's big in my life is energy and energy work. So if you can't do anything else, go outside, stand on your lawn, take your shoes off, put your feet on the ground. Um, that's one way that you can feel connected to the earth. You can feel connected um, to life as a whole, maybe. And you can realize that you are just one part in all of this. And that all of this is um, here to be with you. You know, you're not alone. You are a part of this ecosystem. And sometimes I think that's very helpful. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely agree that that can, that sort of, recalibrating um, just what a small part of what a large system we are we are <clears throat> I think that there's something that can really help us um, reestablish the size of the issue that we're facing I right. felt that before right. um, one of the things that I was going to say too when we were talking about the both and situation and defensiveness we just took a little tiny trip up to Duluth. And one of the things we did was go to the lynching memorial. They have all of these great quotations on the walls. Um, and this cor it's a corner of a block. Mm -hmm. And one of the quotations is from Rumi. And, mm -hmm. you know, you might know Rumi. He's a poet mm -hmm. um, from, I think, the 16th century. Anyway, um, one of the lines in the Rumi quotation is, we are pain and what cures pain. Mm. And I think that's just something we have to keep in mind. Mm. I am, as a white person, I am somebody that contributed to those lynchings in Duluth. Mm -hmm. But as a white person, I also have the opportunity to make things better. 
so that I can do my part to eliminate the pain that those lynchings on a larger scale caused. Yeah, that's really profound for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And spiritually, I like to say that we are a drop in the ocean. We are just a little tiny part of the oneness, but we are also the ocean. All of the tininess or all of the bigness is found in that little tiny drop. Mm-hmm. You know, we just have to remember that we are both small and large. Right. We are everything's opposite. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation that we were able to have today. I really appreciate your time. And yeah. I'm so glad that, yeah. that we were able to do this. Me too. Thanks so much for joining me. I look forward to our next episode and hope you'll join us again 